We have two scripture passages this morning, first from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, and then from Micah chapter 5, verses 2 through 4. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, Where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. And then from Micah. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, are only a small village among all the people of Judah, yet a ruler of Israel, whose origins are in the distant past, will come from you on my behalf. The people of Israel will be abandoned to their enemies until the woman in labor gives birth. Then at last, his fellow countrymen will return from exile to their own land. And he will stand to lead his flock with the Lord's strength in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Then his people will live there undisturbed for he will be highly honored around the world. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you have a chat box or um, have a card that you can hold up, I have a question to ask everyone as we start our time of focusing in God's word. Find some, maybe one, maybe two words to describe the kind of leadership the world needs. Please feel free to put that in the chat box. Kind, wise, compassionate, firm, honest, respectful, loving, compassionate, loving, Jesus, unifying. All right, servant leadership, compassion and teamwork, humble, awesome, awesome, honest and respectful, benevolent. You guys are, are uh, hitting on all cylinders and thank you for your, uh, your comments. Kings and presidents. What has Advent got to do with them? I 
think we'd all agree that our elections serve only to exacerbate divisions in our society. So many people pour their hearts and souls and finances into their candidate and their party. When the right people win, we're ecstatic. When the person of our choice loses, we're devastated. In each election, opposing candidates offer competing visions for our nation, conflicting solutions to our problems and frequently divergent policies aimed at addressing issues and solving problems. I agree with pastor and author Adam Hamilton when he says it's so appropriate then that Advent begins three weeks after election day. It puts all the political maneuvering into perspective. But whatever we think about the president and whomever we previously voted for, there is only one leader, one king for Christians. Only one person deserves our highest allegiance. Politics may have divided us, but Advent should bring us together as we unite around the celebration of the first coming at the birth of Jesus and his second coming, which we look forward to. John Wesley said something very apt in his commentary on the New Testament. Would to God that all the party names and unscriptural phrases and forms which have divided the Christian world were forgot and that we might all agree to sit down together as humble, loving disciples at the feet of our common master, to hear his word, to imbibe his spirit, and to transcribe his life in our own. If we identify ourselves as Christians, whether we're Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, Independent, or Socialists, Advent invites us to the stable to join the shepherds in worship of the king. We'll be loosely following these next few weeks an Advent series that was written by Pastor Adam Hamilton entitled Incarnation. And our purpose throughout this time is to grasp the importance of the incarnation as we consider what the prophets, the angels, the shepherds, and gospel writers said about him. In doing so, I pray that we will grow deeper in our appreciation of Jesus and renew our faith in him. So today, we will look into the titles that are used for Jesus in the Christmas stories. Matthew begins his account of the Christmas story by describing Jesus as Messiah. Luke records the angel's message to the shepherds declaring the birth of a savior, the Messiah, the Lord. Now, Messiah is an English approximation of the Hebrew word Masiach. Its literal meaning is anointed or anointed one. It refers to the individual or object upon which special oil has been poured to set apart for God's purposes. The tabernacle priests and later kings were anointed. Prophets and priests anointed kings, indicating that they were 
holy to God, set apart for God's service, ruling on behalf of God, representing God and doing God's work. In many countries, monarchs are still anointed with oil at their coronation, as was Queen Elizabeth II in 1953. Down through Israel's history, although prophets, priests, and holy furnishings were anointed, the role of king became most closely associated with anointing in scripture. King Saul, King David, King Solomon were known as God's anointed Messiah. And King David became the archetype for all future kings of Israel. Now, King David's story is fascinating. It's told over four Old Testament books, and many of the Psalms were written, commissioned by, or dedicated to him. He's named over 1,000 times in the Bible, more often than anyone but Jesus. He was very flawed, but God loved David, showed him mercy, and used him to shepherd his people. God promised that a descendant of David would rule over God's people forever. This was profoundly hopeful, a promise that brought the Jewish people through long periods of exile and foreign occupation. They held on to the expectation that God would raise up a new king like David to rule over and shepherd God's people. This hope for an ideal king like David was known as messianic hope. And the prophets spoke of it and when a new king was crowned, they dreamt of a king in David's royal bloodline. They looked forward to a reign of justice and righteousness. Hear these words from Isaiah 9 verses six and seven. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. Well, whether or not this described the birth of a crown prince in 732 BC or King Hezekiah around 727 BC, as many interpreters think, this picture of a leader could never be fulfilled by a human king. Who can you think of who could truly be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, Prince of Peace, besides, well, God. So these words of Isaiah given in the eighth century before Christ remained an unfulfilled promise in each successive generation. In Jesus' day, the Jews were still yearning for a king just like that. Herod the Great ruled, but he certainly was neither from David's royal line or just and righteous. And he merely ruled at the pleasure of the Roman emperor. This was the context in which the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary in Nazareth and said, 
Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and bear birth and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will rule over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. And right there, there's the Davidic promise regarding the child that is to come to Mary, a child who could rightly bear Israel's royal titles. Matthew begins his account of Christmas with, now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place this way. And Matthew and Luke make it clear who their story is about right up front. It's about the anointed one, Messiah, Christ, Davidic King. So what about presidents and kings? Well, our country's presidential elections are lavish displays of power and wealth. At one point, three of our presidential candidates were billionaires. Before the demanded recounts, our 2020 campaign spending was estimated to reach $14 billion, more than doubling the 2016 election spending. And on Inauguration Day, thousands of people will be looking on from around the world. Following the inauguration, the new president will enjoy balls, great food and dancing. The president and family will live in the White House with a highly trained security team to protect them. President Biden will become not only the leader of the free world, but the commander in chief of the most powerful military in our planet. And then there's King Jesus, born in a stable, cradled in a feeding trough. He grew up in the backwater town of Nazareth with nothing resembling wealth. He was trained in making tools, farm implements, doors, furniture. Perhaps we would call him today a handyman. As Hamilton suggests, Jesus began his campaign for the office of king at age 30. He went from town to town giving stump speeches about the kingdom of God. He called people to love God, their neighbors, and their enemies. He called his audiences to humility, kindness, integrity, forgiveness, and selflessness. He loathed hypocrisy and pride. And as we learned last Sunday, he said that the mark of a follower of his was to care for the hungry, the thirsty, the naked, the sick, the imprisoned, and the immigrant. His campaign finance team was a group of mostly women who traveled with him and provided support for him and the 12 disciples. Most of his campaign staff were disciples who'd never run a campaign before. They were fishermen, tax collector, a group of largely uneducated men. And perhaps those of the day would have called them misfits, a team of inexperienced people unfit for such an important job. 
Jesus campaigned through all the towns and villages, preaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing disease. He had great compassion for them because they were confused and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. The idea that Jesus is on, was on a campaign trail makes sense. And I think his disciples in particular would have seen his work in those terms. They anticipated that he'd someday be recognized as king and they'd rule with him. He built support and popularity for his reign at each stop. He dined with leaders. He spoke at gatherings of thousands of people. He constantly spoke of his vision, a vision of the kingdom of God. But in many ways, by today's standards, he campaigned all wrong. People wanted a king who would raise an army to push the Romans out of the land. Peace through military strength. They wanted an aggressive plan to address all the social ills and bring in a new era of prosperity. But he called his countrymen to love the Romans, to seek peace and nonviolence, instead of courting the powerful and influential or the idea of quid pro quo, he ended up alienating the most powerful and hung out mostly with those who were poor and powerless. His campaign promises were few and far between, with no pledge to lower taxes, increase jobs, or defeat the Romans. He didn't promise to make Israel great again. Instead, he talked about compassion, mercy, and justice for all. His platform rested on self-denial and he measured success by heart transformation, not achievement. Citizens of this kingdom would be required to obey the law of love, to love God with all their hearts, souls, minds, and strength, and love their neighbors as themselves. Well, let me ask you, is it possible for such a kingdom to exist on earth? Jesus taught his followers to pray for it. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. His teaching was all about how to live as a citizen of this kingdom. He did say to Pilate, the Roman governor, my kingdom is not from this world, but Jesus believed it could be present in those who yield their hearts and lives to God. You may remember, he also said, the kingdom of God is among you. So although Messiah means anointed one, it was most commonly used as another way to say king. Jesus' anointing and coronation defied expectations, the same as did his campaign. Instead of being anointed by a high priest or a prophet or by the Archbishop of Canterbury, Jesus was anointed by women. One anointed his feet while he was dining with Simon the Pharisee. A second anointed his head just before he was arrested. While he was eating at the home of 
Simon the leper. Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, anointed Jesus while he ate at their home. Again, just days before his arrest. In all three instances, a woman honors Jesus by anointing him and she's completely unaware of the significance of this act in relation to his role as the anointed one, the king. The Roman soldiers carried out Jesus' coronation by crafting a crown of thorns to push down on his forehead. He was exalted when they stripped him, nailed him to the cross and lifted it into the air where he lay dying for hours, nobly laying down his life for his people. The sign above his head stated his crime and it read, the king of the Jews. Of course, we are so glad that the story doesn't end there because Jesus conquered death and rose and appeared first to women, women followers and then to the disciples and ultimately to many hundreds more. He called his followers to continue the work he'd begun, passing on his teachings, baptizing new believers into God's kingdom. He rehearsed his vision for them to live together as God's people, praying and working for God's kingdom. And the kingdom grows as people choose to follow Christ. In the last four weeks, we focused on Jesus' teaching regarding his return and final judgment of evil. Handel's Messiah picks up the words of Revelation 11:15, The kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Evil will be utterly defeated. And in the words of Revelation 21, verses 3 through 5, Jesus says, See, I am making all things new. We live between the triumphs of Easter and Christ's return, when all things will be made new. Now, suffering and darkness and injustice seem to control the world. But we continue to live as followers of the king whose kingdom is not of this world, but breaks into this world through us, his followers. Jesus talks about this when he compares the kingdom of God to yeast, leavening a batch of dough. And when he tells his disciples they're like salt that preserves and flavors food. And when he describes the kingdom as a tiny mustard seed that grows into a shrub where birds find refuge. Nearly a third of the world's population claims Jesus as their king. And many more have been influenced by his teachings, values, and model life. It may well be that Jesus is the most influential person to have ever lived. We realize each day that Jesus deserves our highest allegiance, deepest devotion, and greatest commitment. Not country, political party, or even family can take his place in our hearts. This King Jesus, God's son, chose to live and walk among us to show us who God is. And God's spirit in turn empowers us to incarnate the love of Christ.
As I think of people I've known who lived, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Esther Freeman Cook comes to mind. She was the most selfless person I have ever known. The second of eight daughters born in Canada during the depression. She was the child who left school in eighth grade to work to supplement their father's meager income. She became a Christian during that time and felt called to carry the good news of Jesus Christ to East Asia. She attended post high school Bible college, mastering all the high school classwork she missed and completing all the required Bible courses. Esther turned down three proposals from men who did not share her call to service. And she set sail for China in the midst of World War II. After attending language school during Japanese bombing, she married my father and moved to an extremely primitive, rugged mountain village. She raised three children and then me, treated illnesses, taught women to read and write, and helped to translate the Bible into the indigenous language of the people with whom my family lived. When she and my father retired from missionary life, she kept serving strangers in her world. She opened our home to a steady stream of, stream of visitors, offering hospitality, turning our downstairs family room into a dormitory to house conference guests, serving Asian refugees in Utah, Oregon, and Washington and California. She interpreted for immigrants at court, took in a young orphan girl, helped newly arrived refugees adjust to Western culture, mentored young moms, served as an English tutor, taught vacation Bible school, and to top it all, helped plant several churches among Chinese immigrants in this country. She modeled for her children and grandchildren that she could live anywhere in the world and be at home. All she needed was to know God had called her there and gave her work to do to serve God and others. Her citizenship was in heaven, in the kingdom of God. Her spirit was tireless and her vision clear. She know, knew that we don't just pray your kingdom come, your will be done, but she worked to make it real, joining God where God is at work already. Our culture pushes us to feel this way, but our politics don't define us. Our submission to the kingship of Jesus Christ is what defines and identifies us. Many of us rebel at the idea of being subjects of a king who controls our fate. But just like the people of Israel who yearned for centuries for deliverance and just leadership in a godly king, we long for someone to put things right. If we've learned nothing else, 2020 has taught us that human wisdom, technology, and science, and politics ultimately can't save us from the disasters we have created. Today is as good a time as any to yearn for Jesus' return. Nations rage against each other, and the earth groans as the climate rains chaos on its inhabitants. Disease continues to kill, and sin controls humanity. 
acknowledging this present darkness anchors us in Advent hope. We long for our Redeemer to make all things right again, and we confidently anticipate that reality. Theologian Fleming Rutledge reminds us that Advent prepares us for end times. As we grieve the brokenness of our world, we cry out for the end, for the coming of judgment of our righteous God. The King is coming is a cry of hope in the midst of darkness, suffering, and pain. Rutledge warns, Advent is not for sissies. And she's right. <laughs> we live in the not yet. Jesus has come, but he has yet to return. Evil flourishes and we wait for the ultimate judgment. How do we live expectantly that all will be made right? We live with hope, confident in the character of our God. Or to quote from a recent sermon by Rutledge, to live in his light, this is what it means to expect his return. Take heart for the king is coming soon. Amen.